So tonight, I thought I would um, explore with you this revealing of the heart. So in doing so, uh, I have to reveal, explore uh, those things uh, that, in a sense, keep it covered or uh, un- unrecognizable uh, by us. So I'm going to uh, start here. This is from Pierre Tillard de Chardin. The I went down into the innermost self, the deepest abyss where I feel dimly that my power of action emanates. But as I move further and further and further away from the conventional certainties by which social life is superficially illuminated, I became aware that I was losing contact with myself. As each step of the descent, a new person was disclosed within me, of whose name I was no longer sure, and who no longer obeyed me. And when I had to stop my exploration because the path faded from beneath my steps, I found a bottomless abyss at my feet. And out of it comes a rising, and I know not from where, the current which I dare to call my life. So I thought uh, about this this evening in the sense of that somehow... Uh, in revealing the dark, uh, we expose the light. And for many of us, when we come to practice, uh, many times we are drawn by uh, some chaos or confusion or suffering or some kind of uh, uh, question about, in a sense, like... uh, Tillard de Chardin, uh, some um, uh, to what dissolve some uncertainty uh, that uh, we have, in a sense, how we have created created ourselves, who we think we are, in some way. And in some ways, uh, the spiritual practice is, uh, first of all, uh, based on this uh, pointing or directing us uh, towards a sense of uh, our peace, our wholeness, our uh, connectedness. Uh, but another is actually a threat, uh, a threat to a constructed self that we have so meticulously put together 
due to uh, causes and conditions. And so I think back uh, for myself, one of the truths in all this has been the uh, uh, the difficulties have been uh, the also those things uh, which have uh, g- given me insight and clarity in many ways. And so when we come to this practice, it's not that we're trying to get rid of those, uh, in a sense, parts of uh, that we think um, don't conform with our idea of uh, kind of the idea of a spiritual or awakened being in some way. But it is actually this capacity to uh, acknowledge and include and not, uh, in a sense, separate out. Uh, the first, uh, the first uh, Vipassana retreat I attended uh, was uh, six weeks of uh, practice. And uh, the first 10 days, I heard the instructions the first day and uh, immediately did something different uh, for the next 10 days. And what I thought was uh, what I was supposed to do was, in a sense, I, I spoke the other night about uh, observing my desperation. Well, in this case, <laughs> I was observing uh, the um, historical context of how I got to be where I was. And so what I did was I would start and I would, basically I went from uh, aspects of stories to story, but I would go back as close to my birth as possible, over and over and over again. And one of the things as I began that process uh, was that um, my awareness uh, was how uh, wherever difficulties were, I had somehow figured out how to bypass or fix or put a bandage on it, or move past it so it was not who I thought I was. And in this process of going back over and over and beginning to see that there was a, a, a thread in this, and that thread was uh, this confusion, this, uh, in a sense, suffering, and that I had not acknowledged. I had not allowed to in a sense uh, be seen or owned in any way. (coughs) And this practice isn't about becoming a better you, by the way. It is really this practice of learning to, in a sense, love who you are. And that includes, in a sense, this this vulnerability, uh, the darkness, the mistakes, uh, the 
times that we may have believed somehow we could either abandon ourselves for love or that uh, if we trusted hard enough, it would be okay, you know. I tell this story because I I always, it still holds me somehow in uh, captivity. And sometimes my wife says, well, maybe it's true. And uh, so a story goes. And again, you know, our past is just story in many ways. But uh, when I was four and a half, I stopped speaking. And uh, so I was diagnosed as an autistic child. And uh, I always joke and say, you know, my first retreat was a silent year-long retreat, (laughs) you know, at four and a half to five and a half. This is a very early yogi, right? (laughs) But the pieces I do remember, uh, the confusion, the anger, uh, the... uh, uh, in a sense, uh, the internal uh, suffering and this uh, fear, uh, the fear of, uh, you know, all I can say today is maybe fear of expression, that somehow, uh, in this case, it was due to trauma. Uh, Well, that's my wife. I'm not sure whether. (laughs) Maybe I'm a little autistic sometimes. (laughs) But uh, the truth is that uh, that somehow the difficulty of that also informed me uh, about uh, my own uh, capacity uh, to seek. And we're all dealt different set of cards and um, one of the uh, I look back and say also difficult cards I was handed was uh, growing up in Europe and then I had this friend who uh, was from San Francisco and he was uh, kind of the beat era a he was a poet and a songwriter and a great musician and uh, maybe uh, one of those people that, uh, a star, uh, a, a mentor that uh, was part of the sort of San Francisco scene that drew me to, to California uh, from Paris where I was living at the time. And uh, I came here and Uh, His life uh, had been quite disrupted uh, due to, uh, this was 1966, just the the buzz of the times, and uh, he was living with this band called the Blue Cheer. I don't know if anybody know what that was, but it was serious, uh, serious stuff. And... (laughs) uh, He... He came to visit me 
uh, one evening, and I could see that you know life was um, a, a confusing. Uh, he had been hospitalized uh, for a while for um, you know a trip he just didn't come down from, and and uh, was uh, speaking in a different language, and uh, was totally out there. And at that time, we didn't know much uh, how to help someone uh, in, in, in those conditions. Um, and uh, he came to me one evening and he said, you know, I just can't do this. I can't do this anymore. And there was some part, the naivety in me, not believing that uh, somehow uh, someone could uh, end this so easily in some ways. And uh, he uh, shot himself right after that. And I held that piece as like some, uh, you know, as a banner of that I had to seek out uh, some, uh, some freedom for myself and uh, also for, not just for him, for it felt like uh, others as well. And uh, two months later, then my mother, was, who lived in Switzerland, was killed in a car accident. And uh, the impacts of these deaths and the kind of suddenness of them and not being able to, because uh, at that time I was uh, much more like a runaway than a, you know, uh, in my family system. Uh, with the Vietnam War and, you know, the the mid-60s and uh, the, that pain and that process of being uh, a seeker and a rebel. And figuring if I could move faster then the experiences I was trying to hold, I would be okay. You know? And fortunately, uh, I uh, actually, I can say, uh, because of the draft and certain other things at that period that forced me to India and began to look for some light in my own darkness. And I think in everyone's world, if you go and you start breaking down the pieces and you start this process of looking back at the pieces, you know, and seeing what brought you here, you know, and that you're willing uh, not to avoid it, but actually to, in a sense, uh, let it in, you know. And so there's this part of the practice uh, that's based on creating this uh, stable mind and uh, a sense of insight into kind of the universal conditioning of things. Uh, In a sense, almost dropping below the personal. And so, and we very much use this wisdom as a... uh, is our path, in a sense, to freedom. 
But it's not the whole story here. It's only half the story. And so, and the other half is actually about, uh, in a sense, the relative. Uh, one is maybe you could say the ultimate, uh, the truth of, uh, of, uh, of the sheer ability to uh, let go, to sit uh, in, a, in the center uh, of experience with what I explain is that empty chair, you know, that suddenly you don't fill that. You just leave it empty. And by leaving it empty, it's available for everything. You know, and we have to do that moment after moment. And it's really what the freedom is based on, is keeping that empty chair, this ability to... Uh, let go uh, on, in a sense, all levels. Uh, But there is also the relative. Uh, The world of confusion, of mistakes, of suffering, of uh, sort of joys and sorrows, the dualistic world. And our practice uh, is developing this wisdom of letting go. It's a necessary piece. You have to do that over and over. But what also has to develop almost simultaneously and along the same parallel uh, is this, really this uh, this practice of the heart. And this practice of the heart says that you can't, uh, you can't escape. Uh, and that that's not what we're doing here. Uh, what we're doing is we're using that emptiness in a sense to recognize our ability to connect. Ultimately, if you could simply sit and without needing to choose uh, what was arising, but not getting rid of what is arising, but simply uh, being with what is arising. Uh, 
if you could keep doing that, uh, eventually what would happen is you would begin, in a sense, uh, this practice is uh, starting on the uh, surface. And the turbulence of who we think we are and how we are is the uh, conditions uh, of uh, what we bring to this. And in many ways, as you sit here, you begin to drop down and kind of clean out the closets and uh, uh, touch uh, so many uh, uncomfortable places. And they teach us uh, what holding on and letting go is about. And we work with this and it begins to drop. And we go from this very, in a sense, this personal uh, mirror, this reflection of uh, our ideas, our thoughts, our memories, our plans, all of that, to some place below. Uh, some place that uh, has more space, more dimension. And as that space or dimension is recognized, Uh, What also is recognized is that, uh, you could say, the non-separateness, the uh, truth of you're not different from me. Uh, We are unique in uh, the kind of causes and conditions that bring us to here. But ultimately, we're not different. So if I could truly sit in a place that allowed me to, uh, to recognize the willingness not to fill the chair uh, with an idea or a plan or... Uh, some (coughs) view of who I thought I should be. But not doing that, and doing that continuously, then it's true that there would be uh, that space or that freedom would be more who I would be. But I would also be intrinsically connected to you. Uh, We couldn't be separate. And if we couldn't be separate, then your story is my story, my story is your story. And... You free me and I free you. 
And that, when we can touch that, that means we have to really recognize the emptiness of the chair and be able to not put anything there for periods of time uh, and uh, begin to to thin out the layers that cover the distance between you and me. There are so many layers, there's so many little hurts and so many places that you couldn't trust or, or things that, uh, you know, went wrong. And you sit here and... Uh, slowly begin to thin uh, that that separates. It's interesting that we have to uh, come together like this uh, in silence and keep our eyes down and stay separate to actually understand connectedness the paradox of this. So I always thought there was this sort of, uh, you know, a sort of uh, desire for enlightenment. And then on the third page in small print, uh, it says... Uh, you can't be free until everyone is free. But, uh, you know, it's in very small print in some ways. <laughs> and um, it truly says that you can make this connection uh, with your, uh, your fearlessness. Because this is all so much based on the fact that uh, those places that you have kept covering up and these thin layers over the heart uh, is so based on um, I could say uh, the lack of... um, trustworthiness. And, of course, that doesn't begin with me. That begins with you. Uh, Learning how to trust uh, again uh, yourself. In many ways, the uh, practice of, uh, in a sense, bring the attention back uh, to the breath and the body and uh, recognizing uh, the movement of the heart and the emotions uh, and the uh, what flittiness of the mind uh, 
begins to uh, actually give us the space uh, so that you can, in a sense, confront the old, uh, the old uh, reactions. Uh, And sometimes it's just your knee hurts and so you begin this process of seeing your strategy and that your strategy uh, works for a little while and then it doesn't seem to work anymore. And so it begins to expose uh, the places that first seem quite benign, but uh, ultimately if you stay there long enough, you will find how fearful uh, uh, we are. So if you could just sit long enough and hard enough, what would happen is your heart, that thinning would happen and your heart would open. That's what would happen. So that I could call maybe the uh, passive approach in some way. Uh, There's also an active approach which we've been working with in the evenings. Uh, This word metta, loving-kindness. It is not something that we're making up. Uh, It is something that uh, is covered up. And so, as we begin to thin out uh, this Oh, this darkness, this confusion, this uh, this uh, uh, kind of desperation of uh, this. Uh, it's some way self-ingrandizing, and. self-diminishing that happens. That's what we watch over and over again. And in this process, um, uh, we can allow that to undo itself and we can also have an intention. Uh, An intention to confront uh, the layers uh, of the heart directly. And so uh, the practice, which was uh, taught by the Buddha, 
for a single purpose. And that purpose was there was a group of monks who went into the jungle and were sent to uh, one area of the jungle. And there they say that there were these uh, uh, tree spirits that (coughs) became disturbed by the monks being there and therefore they created uh, awful smells and uh, uh, weird sounds and uh, it basically uh, created this fear in the monks since the monks went back to the Buddha and the Buddha simply said, and they wanted to go to a different area. And he said, no, no, go back and I'm going to teach you a simple practice. And so he taught them this metta practice so that they could go back and uh, in a sense deal with their fear. that that, in a sense, covers the heart. And so, uh, as story goes, as they went back and they uh, recited what is called the Metta Sutta and they practiced this loving-kindness practice, and the tree spirits became so enamored uh, of the monks that uh, it became a place of refuge and that they uh, protected uh, that area. So that's story. And to use that uh, as a way to touch um, ultimately when uh, you come to this practice and uh, you dig and you hang out and you go deep and what happens is you begin to thin out your connection to who you are. It's where I started this talk. And as you begin to thin that out, there is a uh, recognition of this kind of groundlessness, this uh, uh, insecurity of being, that uh, the self uh, has no real place to stand in this. And so... Uh, what happens is there is a desperation at some point, almost like a panic. And that panic uh, reaches uh, for the self, <coughs> whatever self you want. You know, but it, it's thinned out, so uh, that reaching um, comes from this very simple feeling And that that feeling uh, has created so much damage uh, in the world. You know, uh, I, you know what? You know, I don't have to say what, how that happens. You know, it's all around us, and so. Our job here sometimes, I know for me, for years, I didn't particularly... When I first came across the metta practice, I um, at first I actually was very touched by the practice. 
But then I found it very difficult to do. Uh, Why? Uh, Because uh, there was a protectionism, some kind of uh, oh, I could say uh, judgment or callousness or kind of the critic that uh, wouldn't allow that vulnerability. It's interesting that what we have to find here is the innocence that touches the heart. And I don't know for each of you that innocence is different. Sometimes it's people that have having a child or it's seeing a baby in a supermarket or it's your cat who unconditionally every time you come home uh, is at the door and is waiting just for you. You know, uh, there is somewhere out there. There is that unconditional, that innocence, and we have to find that innocence, that thing that can go behind the heart. And I'm not saying that's always so easy to find. And sometimes it has to be. Uh, we have to reinitiate that because uh, our, our uh, woundedness and our cynicism uh, and our mistrust. But to look for that, the world is full of places, you know. What comes to me just thinking of that, and it really strikes me, is when I would help lead these pilgrimages in India to the holy spots of the Buddha, the um, is going to Calcutta to. Uh, it's, it's such a fascinating city. Uh, to the Kali Temple and. Uh, outside of Mother Teresa's hospice, uh, you know, just one of those faces that was actually wasn't allowed inside because they weren't, uh, their condition wasn't enough, uh, so they would be allowed inside. But they were outside, and at some point they would be brought inside and then, uh, in a sense, uh, supported uh, in their uh, death process. And, you know, if you think back, if you, you have to find some, and sometimes it may be a TV, something that touches, you know, some place of innocence, some place of openness. I remember uh, uh, Chogyam Trumpa talked about when he was a little boy, that in his, the village he grew up, uh, what touched his heart was... Uh, uh, a dog that came into the village and that all the kids started stoning the dog. You know. And that that image uh, of the pain of that uh, went directly underneath the callousness of the heart. 
And I don't know for you. I'm saying, though, you have to. One of the things is this: there's, it's can be also kind of a rote exercise that works just fine. But for me, it's actually finding that peace that touches the heart, that I can breathe into the heart. And then allow it, in a sense, uh, uh, to give me the confidence and uh, actually trust. You know, uh, uh, trust in... the uh, that deep-seated uh, longing that each of us has in the sense of uh, loving the world. You know, that it, this is not something foreign to you. This is something that you know and you may see it in a redwood, you may see it in the little, the buck that comes down and runs through or the blue jays. You know, there's some place there that love for the world that is uh, not just out there. You know, you are a reflection of that. And that you have to somehow find that reflection and then allow that reflection to move you. you know, to, to, in a sense, to move the heart. Sometimes it's the laughter and sometimes it's the tears. Yeah. But not to be afraid. I think that's the biggest piece is not to be afraid, you know. And we have love sometimes. We have it so uh, confused in some ways. But in this another one of our cultural pieces about uh, we have love is some kind of an emotion that connects, you know, to an individual or to... Um, Uh, some momentary feeling that somehow we recognize uh, that longing or that wish or that connection. But from this point of view, it's actually much different. You have to use uh, the thread of connection and that innocence uh, and the uh, in a sense the the lack of uh, fear uh, to connect with a state of being and that state of being says I love you you know, but it doesn't say anybody or anything. It says, you know, uh, that it's a uh, 
unconditioned. An unconditioned state. And that unconditioned state cannot have fear. It can't have the fear of you're going to leave me or separateness or uh, some it can't be separate it can't be separated so it's a state a state of being that holds everything without qualification. Universal in that way. Lovely. um, A state of being. And sometimes uh, the practice itself can be quite dry uh, because we're hitting the surface. We're not going behind all the scars and the cover-up. And yet, one of the beauties of Buddhist practice is saying that if the intention is there and the repetition is there, uh, hopefully somewhere, somehow, you will move around the callousness or the protection, the fear, uh, and uh, touch that non-separateness, that sense of uh, Universal caring is what it is. So I'd like to just mention some other aspects of this because I think they're important to look at in the sense of uh, there is this metta, but it also has components to it. And traditionally, uh, this is talked about as the uh, Brahma Viharas or the uh, uh, really the abodes of the gods, you know, the, the exalted uh, states uh, when uh, one's closets are kind of cleaned out and uh, uh, one doesn't recoil from uh, the... You know, the difficulty inside and outside. In owning the darkness is owning uh, the Crusades and Hitler and uh, Abu Ghraib and all that is a part of that connectedness, that universalness. And so in a way, to own a piece of that is to also to uh, have 
the truth of breaking the heart open. And we talk about this uh, practice karuna or metriya or compassion uh, is our capacity uh, to not get lost in, but to hold the suffering. The suffering in yourself, uh, it's like I was talking about going back in your story and, and you know each of you have been betrayed or abandoned or um, uh, have some damage, you know. And that damage can be something that separates or it can be that that informs, that that allows to, you to connect. And so we take this suffering, we take the compassion, we take the darkness, and we can allow us uh, allow that to inform us uh, about connection, uh, about uh, you and I are the same. No. Uh, there is a tremendous amount of forgiveness uh, when not only we see it on the outside, we see it on the inside. It's not fair. Uh, due to fear, there is tremendous amounts of cruelty. There's tremendous amount of hoarding and greed, and you know we could name it off in so many ways. And the practice of emptiness allows us, in a sense, to hold a bigger dimension of suffering, which means there's a bigger dimension of compassion. It's what stabilizes. It's what allows it to be big. Otherwise, we would just collapse into it and be swallowed and dissolve in the poison. But this is a practice that actually takes it and transforms it, uh, in a sense, into a nectar of uh, taking in the darkness and transforming it uh, into the nectar of activity, of uh, compassionate activity, words and deeds. Now, the other side of that uh, coin is that we have uh, suffering in the world, and we also have beauty and joy in the world. You know, to see that innocence, to uh, see the uh, sheer uh, uh, remarkableness uh, of this planet, to look at the creatures, to look at the sky, to look at the uh, uh, the uh, the creatures at the bottom of the ocean, it just fascinate me. You know their colors and their uh, and their sense of uh, you know uniqueness of being. You know. And so we can also hold, as we hold the suffering and the compassion and the really the difficulty, we can also hold uh, the joy. Uh, 
giving ourselves, in a sense, uh, permission. Again, with the emptiness, not to um, become overly elated with it, but to hold it, you know, uh, as part of uh, this practice, a part of being here. Uh, actually, we can hold more and more of it. You know. And I find sometimes for people, they are, they can practice compassion and they can understand the suffering, but it's more difficult for them actually to sometimes uh, hold the joy in their life and uh, to let that joy... Um, be shared, you know. Sometimes uh, fear or negativity or ideas of control, particularly in, in relationships, you know, uh, where we forget, you know, uh, that. The last of these is the uh, this upekya, this uh, really this uh, practice of uh, you could say um, that it can hold the joy and the suffering in balance, you know, not getting lost, you know. And it truly is a, a um, an abode of uh, of greatness, you know. And I see it so much of the practice of holding the ten thousand sorrows and the ten thousand joys uh, is based on bringing the uh, this quality of uh, holding it all in balance uh, it is uh, truly an art you know because it's so easy to get lost in one aspect or another but ultimately to hold this practice as a uh, universal way of acting in the world. Our insight is to give us the wisdom and the wisdom is to allow us to uh, recognize uh, our capacity to let go and and uh, not get caught in kind of the dualistic, uh, our dualistic needs, but actually our capacity to recognize uh, the uh, freedom in of not losing ourselves anywhere. 
and then these Brahma Viharas, this capacity to be specific in the world, is actually this metta. It's actually the activity that comes out of that, uh, if I've been using this word emptiness, this freedom, you know, because it doesn't trip itself up. You know, it simply uh, selflessly acts. So I think uh, that's enough. I would like to close with a quote from Sri Sargadat, the great Bidiwala of Bombay. And um, uh, it goes, Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Love tells me I'm everything. And my life is somewhere in between. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Love tells me I'm everything. This talk was given by John Travis at Vajrapani on August 8, 2007. It is an offering of the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.